1: woman elected county executive on long island breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past laura curran joining us alive
2: it's cut to the chase with laura curran entertaining and informative thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point observers say her future is bright here to tell us more about it laura curran now here's laura curran
1: Hello everyone. Happy Sunday afternoon. Uh, We have so much to talk about. There's so much that seems to be happening all the time. So we really are going to be cutting to the chase. I'm happy to say that I am joined in the studio by Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Hello.
3: Good, Good afternoon. Great to be here.
1: Well, you may recognize that voice from CNBC. She's been on that network for 20 years. She just got back from D.C., so we're going to get into what's going on there. And like me, she is a journalist that became a politician that became a journalist <laughs> again. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, we're also going to catch up with other D.C. news with Real Clear Politics White House correspondent Phil Wegman. Uh, he recently ventured outside the Beltway to cover Nikki Haley as she tries to get attention with all this Trump stuff happening. And then we'll get the latest on the budget battle upstate in Albany from Albany reporter for New York Post, Zach Williams. Bail, housing, top new judge. Uh, it's all much more s- suspenseful than my favorite TV show, Succession. But first, we have a little cut for you, Mr. Mister...
4: Bond. James Bond.
1: Well, James Bond, maybe not. He is a low-level tech support guy, Massachusetts Air National Guardsman, Jack Teixeira, 21 years old. He was charged last week under the Espionage Act for posting top-secret intelligence information on Discord, which is a social media platform popular with video gamers. Um, I actually asked my daughter about this. She's a 17-year-old, and she knows all about Discord. So I got the information there. Uh, The leaks were disclosed, uh, disclosed top-secret assessments of the war in Ukraine, information On the Russian military, along with top secret intelligence about South Korea, North Korea, the Mossad, which is Israel's intel agency, Iran, and much, much more. So, to help us understand how such a thing can happen, I reached out to Brian Rose. He's a former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York. He's a cybersecurity expert and founder of Tower Square Consulting. Brian, welcome to Cut to the Chase.
5: Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me on today.
1: So were you surprised that this was an internal leak and not a foreign agent or entity?
5: I'm not surprised. You know, the United States has a history of these kinds of leaks, and I think it really points to something that those of us in the cybersecurity field appreciate that I don't think the general public necessarily does, and that's that You know, cybersecurity is not always just protecting against hackers from outside and and foreign governments. It's also a problem of insider access to information. In fact, that's what we see in either these government leaks or big corporate leaks. They're frequently the result of insiders who have justified access to the information but are using it in an unauthorized way.
1: So this information bounced around various chats and threads for a couple of months before it was discovered. Were you surprised, as someone who's done this work for a long time, that such a leak could happen and kind of percolate out there uh, for that amount of time?
5: So I I was shocked by a couple of things. Um, One is that, as you mentioned, uh, basically a low-level tech support person in the Massachusetts National Guard had access to this kind of information in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or in Ukraine, South Korea, North Korea, the Mossad. These are the kinds of things he didn't need access to to do his job, and and it will be a real question down the road as to why he had this information. So I was certainly shocked by that. I'm also shocked by, as you mentioned, the fact that it wasn't discovered for up to two months after he posted it. And, And one of the reasons I'm shocked about that is in looking at the... The way they had set this up, he was essentially um, accessing and printing information off a very sensitive database. The The fact that he was printing that information was recorded in the print logs, and nobody picked up on it. That's the kind of thing that you, you have very sensitive information. You're allowing people to print, but certainly somebody should be reviewing that, and that should have been a huge red flag immediately. So it is somewhat shocking he was able to print that information, hmm. carry it outside of the Massachusetts National Guard to his house, and upload it to the Internet with nobody being uh, any the wiser.
3: Hi, it's Michelle here. Another question getting to the heart of why did this kid have this information? Um, I heard a report on CNBC that actually he'd been able to access the info for two years. That means he would have been 19 years old when they gave him this access. Why do so many people have clearances like this?
5: Well, it, it, it is a little shocking, I think, in context. There, there are a lot of people who need information like this and are gonna have justified access to it. I do not, I, I cannot explain why somebody in his position who doesn't have a need to know would have access to it. And I think there are a couple of explanations. The first is just sloppy management of their classified information. Um, you know, And we see now that they're taking steps to pare back distribution lists of, of the daily classified briefings. I'm sure they've restricted access to this system. But what happens over time, people are granted access, and more people request access, and they're given access, and people aren't actively managing those distribution lists and those access controls, partly because it's a huge logistical job. And so my guess is this is something that slipped through the cracks. For some reason, he was granted access, and nobody at any point picked up on the fact that this is a person who should not have this access. Uh, and should should be denied access to this kind of information. Um, it will be interesting to see what comes out of the investigation as to the facts and circumstances of this case. But I think probably in their review they're figuring out right now, you're going to have a lot of people like this who should not have access to the information, but because of either loose controls or because of just the task of going through and mapping out who should have access to classified information, these things can fall through the cracks.
1: So, Brian, in this brave new world of ever-expanding tech, uh, ways of sharing and disseminating information are becoming more more diverse, more complicated, more difficult to track. So folks like you are going to be busier and busier and always having to evolve to keep up with bad actors. How do you stay on top of it all?
5: It's very difficult because, you know, what happens is as you start to understand the way um, different attackers are working and the different problems and you fix those holes, they're already on to working on new vulnerabilities. And so uh, it's constantly staying on top of things and in front of things. I think one of the key things, though, is you're not always going to be able to keep people out, whether because you have a very sophisticated outside entity who hacked its way into your um, network. Or in this case, because somebody from inside has access to the information. The bigger problem is you have to make sure that if that happens, you catch it quickly so you can mitigate the damage. Um, You know, these attackers are very sophisticated. They may get in, but you should know when they're in and you should be able to shut it down quickly. And as you said earlier, that was one of the biggest problems here, right? He had access for over two years. And he was transmitting this information outside of the Massachusetts National Guard for months before anybody even picked up on it. And and that's that's the real problem yeah.
3: How damaging do you think it is?
5: Well, I'm not a national security expert. Um, I, you know, I what I've seen, I think it's probably reputationally very damaging. I'm not sure from a secrets perspective, it, it's it's as damaging. But obviously. This is classified as top secret stuff, but I know they're trying to minimize it, but it's classified as top secret because its dissemination is going to be harmful. And so I, I think it's certainly harmful, um, you know, from a national security perspective, and it's certainly harmful reputationally, and it's harmful for our relationship with our allies, right? A lot of mm-hmm. this information is not just generated by the United States, but it's also shared among our various allies, and they need to be able to trust that you're going to keep that, that secret. And so when you have a leak like this, And when other countries see that you haven't secured the data and, in fact, somebody like this has gotten access to it and been able to leak it, that's going to certainly be very harmful um, from an intelligence perspective in
6: terms of information sharing.
1: One last question for you, Brian. Uh, What would you advise your clients if such a breach happens in their organization?
5: So I I think you need to be very careful of going through the process of of securing your data as carefully as possible, right? Doing exactly what the government is doing now, which is doing a careful review of who has access to this information and making sure it's limited to those with a need-to-know basis, And, and that's a difficult task. I will say that one of the challenges the government faces and businesses face is, you know, this pendulum swings back and forth between securing and limiting access to data, so right now we're going, I think, probably in one direction where we're going to secure that data, we're going to really limit who has access to intelligence. But you don't want to go too far, either if you're a corporation or if you're the government. I mean, think about it from an intelligence-sharing perspective. You want people to have access to this information because, you know, for instance, preventing terrorist attacks happens because information is shared and different agencies pick up different pieces of mm-hmm. information.
1: We saw that all in 9-11 for sure.
5: All, right. So you don't want the pendulum to swing far back, too far back in the other direction. We're now we're limiting access, but we're also hampering people's ability to do their jobs. Right. Um, And so I think, you know, walking that line is one of the most difficult things we try to help, um, you know, companies and governments do in these situations.
1: Brian Rose, former federal prosecutor here in New York, cybersecurity expert and founder of Tower Square Consulting. Thanks so much for coming on Cut to the Chase. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to 77 WABC. I am Laura Kern. This is Cut to the Chase. I am in the studio with Michelle Caruso Cabrera. And later on in the show, if we got time, I want to hear from you. 800 848 9222. So, Michelle, I was looking at your Wikipedia page, and you and I have so much in common. We were born in the same year, both journalists turned running for office sort of back to journalism, active in boards and many other things. You
3: actually won an election, (laughs) more than one.
1: (laughs) But you you know what? You didn't do badly. So when I first met you, it was in 2020. It was Mm -hmm. about a week before the world shut down. We were probably one of the biggest super spreader events on the planet, which was APAC down in D.C. And you were running in a primary against AOC. So I was really interested to meet you and talk to you. Um, Didn't go great. No, I lost. Yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> and then you ran for controller in the primary. And you were actually, I just learned this today, our mutual friend told us this, uh, you were the top uh, Latino vote-getter in all of the races that were going on in 2021 in New York City. So yeah. all everyone, a million people running for mayor, for controller, for public advocate and everything else. Uh, do you think your AOC challenge helped your name recognition? the second race in 2021
3: oh it helped in all kinds of ways right you the first time you run you learn so many things so the second time you run you feel much more comfortable about running yes and um yeah and i know people had a very clear view of what i stand for right i uh i want a new york city that is welcoming to all that is welcoming to business uh that will be a, a city that has prosperity and safety at the same time. These were all messages that I gave in my first race and also did in the second race. So I, I came in third out of 10. I came in second in the Bronx, only 5,000 uh, votes behind the uh, top vote getter in, in, in that particular borough. And I actually, you know, Andrew Yang was on TV every single day running for mayor, and I got more votes than he did. Which is amazing. Plus, he had also run for president. And he had run for president. He had $7 million and only had $2 million. Wow. I had 165,000 votes in that race.
1: Uh, now, you're the kind of Democrat that I I, I find is like a safe space <laughs> for me. <laughs> Pro-business, pro-public pro safety. Yes, big net help everybody. Yes. Uh, so I, I find that we're, especially in New York, we're not doing so well these days, us moderate Democrats. I think
3: we're coming back. Yeah. So first of all. What well, makes you think that? Well, Eric Adams won. Yes. Right. He I think did. He was, you know, he as ran, a pro. Yes. Pro, yep, as a comp. pro business and public safety being extremely important. Uh, at the same time, being inclusive, making sure that we leave no one behind. Right. As the city comes back from the pandemic. So I, I, I think the pendulum is swinging for sure. Um You know, it's uh, we've seen some races that got a little closer than some people might have expected. Yeah. Uh, So perhaps, you know, there's a a realization that the party uh, needs uh, to focus on moderates.
1: So I just want to switch gears. So you uh, have been working at CNBC for 20 years and you were just down in D.C. covering the IMF. Uh, are we heading for
3: a recession? So that was the big question. So I'm a contributor at CNBC. I was full time for more than 20 years. And now I'm, you know, call it part time, which is kind of perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm on like once a week. Um, So the International Monetary Fund has a big uh, meeting twice a year. And there's always a dominant theme or question. And there were two things that were asked over and over again. Are we headed toward a recession? And are we headed toward war? Um, And so um, I think there's a lot of optimism that We aren't going to have a severe uh, recession, but increasingly there's a belief that we are going to have a recession, which means Mm. a decline in growth, a decline in jobs, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I feel like we've been waiting for this recession
3: for quite a while. We have. Talk about suspense. We have a lot of uh, people, Americans and New Yorkers, had a lot in savings uh, because of the pandemic. One, they couldn't spend a lot, right? We couldn't go out. We couldn't do anything. Uh, There was a lot of help from the government to, to incentivize people to stay home, to not spread, Uh, But that money is running out and now interest rates are rising Hmm. uh, much higher than a lot of people had anticipated. And that really crimps the economy. I'm Laura Kern. I'm talking to Michelle
1: Caruso Cabrera and you are listening to 77 WABC. What do you think New York can do to be more business friendly now?
3: It would help if we uh, didn't have quite so many regulations that make it so hard to get yeah. started, to well, get things built, to get things done. And that
1: might even get more complicated. We're going to talk to Zach Williams, New York Post, Albany reporter. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this budget that could make make business much harder than it is now.
3: Yeah. Uh, there's also things where she's trying to make it easier to build. Yes. Th- that would be really That's important. That's true. And we talk about she being housing. Ho- Governor right.
1: Hochul making it easier, cutting some of that red tape
3: to, to the yeah Things don't get mired. Yes, but we we should be leaning into those things that help uh, business create jobs, not things that hurt business and stop them from, you know, in the, you know, the big IRA package where they give out all this money to help build for, you know, uh, all these, uh, you know, when it comes to dealing with climate change, red states are actually getting a lot more of that money than blue states. Mm. And partly it's because. Red states are much more friendly to business, right, and so if there's money to be had, they're going to go after it right. uh we should be doing the same thing, interesting, not as much regulation uh
1: so back to politics, do you think that you would ever run again for something you know i'm I'm very
3: committed to public service yeah i uh you know I've been on the board of the ballet Hispanico here in New York City for more than twenty years. I'm the mm. president of that board now, mm. and uh, I do a lot for Mana of life uh. Up in the Bronx, which is a wonderful food pantry that feeds like three hundred families wow. every month. So I'm very committed to public service. I think at this point it would probably be uh a, in an appointed position, not necessarily running yeah. again. I've yeah. got some other things going on that, you know, I've I've got to make a choice one way or the other. So Yeah.
1: So it does you know, you're the the woman who took on AOC in a democratic primary. I don't even know if anyone primaried her this last time. Uh do uh, what was that experience like? And also, is it something that you're sick of talking about? I mean, are you the go to person <laughs> for all things a- AOC?
3: Um, so, you know, running your first race is hard, right? Uh, scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's scary. But um, and then the pandemic. It takes balls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. But yes, I agree. Cojones. You yeah, know? cojones. Um, so I, I, uh, the pandemic started a month after I announced so that was oh, God. doubly hard. Oh, my God. So a- everything about it was hard. So everything but, by know, Zoom. you she ended up having to spend $10.2 million in that race against my two point seven mm. Uh So we really forced her. And, and the other thing is she started to come home, you know, because she had run saying, you know, that the previous occupant of the position was never there. Yeah. And then guess right. what?
1: That was her whole on d'etre. Right, right, right,
3: right. And then she did the same thing. And so now she's much more committed to actually doing things in the district, uh, opening up different offices that she hadn't done before. So
1: Yeah, and I saw you had a, an op-ed in The Post a yeah. few months ago about that same issue. Yeah. Uh, and she's been taken to task by some fellow progressives about the same. I yeah. mean, I remember Jessica Ramos, the state senator,
3: said... It would be nice if you breathed our air. I was like, damn, girl. <laughs> well, well, you know, she got that line from where? That, from AOC, because that's what she said about.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
3: he doesn't breathe our air. He doesn't drink our water. Oh, touche. His children don't go to our schools. That's what she said. Wow. Wowie.
1: So, um, are you fall? Follow- so, you were also defeated by Brad Lander, who is the AOC and Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. endorsed controller. How do you think he's doing?
3: You know, I think he spends a lot of time focusing on issues that are less germane to what the actual job is. You know, it's kind of a nebushy, nerdy
1: job. It's yeah, you're I, I money. Mean,
3: you're literally the oversight person for the spending of the city and the accounting uh, that happens. And um, we need to really be thinking about what happens if we have a recession mm-hmm. and how are we going to deal with the fact that there's going to be la- less tax revenue? You know, we, we thank goodness that Joe Biden won. For a number of reasons, including that New York got a lot of help mm. during the pandemic. And if he hadn't won, we wouldn't have. Mm. And we'd be in dire economic straits. But now that money is starting to run out. So we really need, you know, we've already seen the city struggling with, okay, what are we going to do with the budget? Um, so we need to be very focused on how do we spend in a way that doesn't leave people behind, uh, that makes sure that we take, we take care of the most vulnerable, but at the same time grapples with the fact that there's going to be less money. Right.
1: Right. I mean, you are right about Joe Biden. And I I mean, I can tell you that as county executive, uh, Chuck Schumer fought for money for local municipalities and Nassau County really got some good money that we needed. You know, we were pretty much right, right to the east of the epicenter of the crisis at the very beginning. And it was we were the sort of dress rehearsal for the rest of the country of what they had to go through. So um, I have to say, I may not always say the nicest things about Joe Biden, but for that, I
3: will always be grateful <laughs> for my little county. And Schumer brought home the bacon. He did. Yeah, he did. You can say what you like about Chuck, but he brought it home. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I am grateful for that. Yeah. And the city should be in and the, and the state should be grateful. Yeah.
1: So um, we got another senatorial race coming up. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is running. Uh, do you think she is vulnerable for a primary from the left? Or or from the right, or from the sort of more moderate well sh- of the party. she's moved
3: very far left, right, mm-hmm. so you know, presumably she might have that covered um you know, she's got to get out there early and with a clear message, and uh we'll see. I mean, you know I, you, you have to you don't know if she's vulnerable until you know who's in the race, yeah, that's right,
1: all right, I think we might have to go to a break, so i we will come back, I'll come back with Michelle Caruso Cabrera. We're going to talk to Phil Wegman. He covers the White House and lots of other stuff for Real Clear Politics. Thanks, and we'll see you on the other side. Cut to
3: the chase. Laura Curran joining us
2: live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on seventy-seven WABC.
3: Cut to the chase. Laura Curran joining us live.
2: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on seventy-seven WABC.
1: Hello, everyone. Laura Curran here. I have my new friend, Michelle Caruso-Cabrera of CNBC, joining me in the studio.
3: Hello, Michelle. Hello. Always a pleasure to be here. What a great voice. Thank you. Wow.
1: <laughs> um, okay, so we want to hear from you in a little while, 800-848-9222. But first, we want to know what's happening in national politics. So we're going to go to the Real Clear Politics White House correspondent, Phil Wegman. Phil, welcome.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You got it. All right. So we're four months before the first GOP primary, which is mind-blowing. I'm feeling that emoji of the exploding brain. Um, Phil, you've been following Nikki Haley around on the hustings. And I believe she's been in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Um, And I'm interested to see. She's getting a little more, uh, shall we say, cojones, uh, going, going against Trump. And I'm always so interested to see these Republican candidates trying to thread that needle, not being too offensive to the base or to the man himself, but also wanting to show that they're different. How do you think she's doing?
6: It's early, but I think that what we're hearing from Nikki Haley is largely a question about electability. It's not so different from what we heard from Biden folks Back in the 2020 Democratic primary she's basically going to voters, especially ones in Iowa who take this very, very seriously, and saying, you might not get everything you want in a primary, but you should couch that uh, in the larger interest, which is finding someone who can defeat Joe Biden in November. And so that's the argument that she's on the road with currently. But Laura, I, I totally agree with you. I think that this primary is going to be fascinating because while we've seen Donald Trump uh, attacks and critiques from the left, and sometimes you know justifiably so, of course, what we haven't seen is the critique from conservatives on the right. Mm-hmm. And they are absolutely tied up in knots about how do they attack the man without alienating the man's uh, supporters. It's going to be fascinating to
2: watch.
1: Yeah, and and I wonder if part of it is, obviously, they don't want to alienate the base, but they also don't want to become a target of his very effective and withering ridicule. Uh, Low-energy Jeb, never recovered. Are we going to have putting fingers DeSantis now? I mean, who's next? and, And the money that MAGA, whatever the name is of the committee, is pouring into attacking DeSantis is really quite chilling.
6: Absolutely. Um, I was not at all surprised to see Donald Trump's super PAC MAGA Inc. go after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as putting fingers. And (laughs) did you see the ad? It's horrible. Yeah, there's there's no um, there's no nowhere that they won't um, stoop. And I think that that was just a, you know, a hit that was designed to do one thing, not necessarily change the mind uh, of voters. But instead, send a message to Santos, which is, this is going to be ugly. Mm-hmm. It's going to be difficult. Are you sure you want to jump in?
0: Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.
3: She obviously has to get through a primary. But I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the general because – hi, it's Michelle here, by the way. When, I, when I'm speaking with folks here in New York City, um, a lot of my Jewish friends who are Democratic voters, hardcore Democratic voters, but they've grown increasingly concerned about the anti-Israel part of the Democratic Party, and see Nikki Haley and what she did at the U.N., and And they and they wonder, like, "Wow, is she somebody who could be acceptable to both sides? So she's got an element to her that that has broader appeal, but I, I you know, I just don't know we're back to this question. Can she get through the primary?
6: Yeah, can she get past the the meat grinder that is donald trump and and does she get a nickname? um One yeah. thing that is unique about Nikki Haley is that she was the rare cabinet. Member to leave the Trump White House on good graces. Um, she didn't get fired in the middle of the night. There wasn't a tweet. Instead, uh, he sent her off after a you know press gaggle in the Oval Office. And we haven't seen him go after her you know that hard yet. Um, and I think it's because you know there's some seriousness behind um, former Ambassador Nikki Haley. I mean, you you mentioned it, uh, her time at the UN. And I, I think that what I was impressed by um, in Iowa was her ability to talk about foreign policy, but then marry it to very real issues on the ground. So it wasn't you know, this academic exercise. Instead, you know, she's at a, a pig farm in Denison, and mm-hmm. she's talking about the UN and her experience there, sure. But it's in the larger context of, hey, I want to stand up for pork producers in this country, and oh, by the way – Uh, the reason why you're not getting as much uh, per, um, you know, per peg is because China's not playing by the rules in the world trade organization Mm. and we need to stand up to them. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that I think is, is really interesting. She she is very good uh, when it comes to retail politics. Uh, I saw more than one voter just get absorbed, um, you know, during the uh, the photograph portion of these events. And she really relates on a, a personal level, you know, If you look at her resume, it's almost like she was built in the basement of the Heritage Foundation as the the perfect presidential candidate. But, Mm -hmm. you know, does she come at a time that's not opportune?
1: I'm Laura Curran. I'm in the studio with Michelle Caruso Cabrera, and we're speaking with Phil Wegman, White House correspondent for Real Clear Politics. Uh, You know, one other question I have for you about the Nikki Haley before we move on to the other stuff is – The news is cluttered with Trump's legal issues. And Mm. did you get a sense from her uh, a frustration of breaking through and getting her message out through this clutter?
6: Absolutely. Um, A big part of her stump speech is telling Republican voters that they need to stop with the complaining and the (laughs) whining. And so I, I put the question to her directly. Does she think that her former boss complains or whines too much? And her answer was that he was focused on the past. And she agrees that he's been treated unfairly, something that you know conservative voters want to hear. That he's been treated unfairly um, by uh, you know the Manhattan District Attorney. But her argument is, if we focus on the past, uh, we're not going to be prepared for the future. And she took it to Republicans, pointing out that they don't win popular votes in elections anymore, yeah. and that something needs to change. Um, I think that that might be a, a bit of a bank shot for a lot of these. Uh, Republican primary voters who, you know, are are going to be voting on a motion um, and are going to be voting, uh, you know, perhaps to try and and stick it to, you know, the Biden administration or or Democrats or just generally to voice their displeasure. Um, But the, the Nikki Haley argument is I can win in November against Joe Biden.
1: Mm hmm. And, you know, she's got a little less competition. Mike Pompeo dropped out and Virginia mm-hmm. Governor Glenn Youngkin says he's pressing pause on exploring a run. So uh, it's early days and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, I have a question for you. So when you're when you're not traveling around following candidates, you're one of those people sitting in the White House briefing room. And <laughs> I've seen I was having fun watching your videos, uh, getting ready to talk to you today. You had a you got scolded by the president recently. Uh, oh. What was that like?
6: Uh, so that was um, – it's been a while now, actually, although time really is flying. Um, it was during uh, President Biden's February press conference. That's what it was. And uh, it was ahead of the midterm. So I think it was actually last year. Um, I was asking him about his comparison of Republicans to uh Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. And I couldn't quite finish my question uh before he interrupted and, and sort of snapped back um that I had, had misread his quote. Um you know he, he took it a a bit personally. It's always it's always a little uh worrisome. You don't you don't want to um draw the ire of uh you know of the president and unfortunately i have drawn the uh the frustration of the previous president too. He didn't you know President Trump didn't like my my question about uh some of the things that were going on during covid well if you're knowing uh, both
1: of them you're probably doing something right as a journalist
6: i I, I hope so but i i think that um you know this is really interesting um and it's a little bit of inside baseball but in the white house press corps yes we hear from press secretary um uh jean pierre and and before we heard from jen saki but it is interesting because there's a little bit of whiplash we went from covering donald trump where the access was incredible. You had, mm. you never had to wonder what he was thinking because he would tweet it out. And then on his way to Marine One, he would stop and talk to reporters for you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, or during a press conference, he would go on for hours. With, with Biden, he has um, much more of a professional team around him. If he's going to make remarks, uh, more often than not, they're planned out. And so um, in the press, our, our bias is, of course, are always towards more access and transparency, but we we don't see him as much as we would like. Mm.
1: Uh, so, do you get the sense that Corinne Jean-Pierre is doing a good job? Is she is she trusted by your colleagues in the press corps?
6: I mean, it's it's a difficult question. Uh, there's a lot of frustration, um, mm. and a, a good example of that is uh, last. Friday, um, excuse me, last, last Thursday, right before Good Friday, the administration dropped their summary of a hot wash review of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And they gave it to reporters 10 minutes before the briefing.
3: Hmm. It
6: was a 15 page document. The withdrawal from Afghanistan was very complicated, it's a, a major event. Um, they dropped their review literally 10 minutes before the briefing and uh, reporters in that room were scurrying to prepare. Um, I, you know, I, to be completely honest, uh, there, there is some frustration, um, that sometimes, uh, you know, both from Corrine Jean-Pierre and then also before her, uh, Jen Saki that there wasn't always a, a willingness to be, you know, completely forthright. Um, you know, we, we saw this press secretary have to correct the record, um, you know earlier this spring when it came to uh president biden's handling of classified documents um you know certainly you know th- there is some frustration also that um she's pretty buttoned up uh, mm-hmm. and and doesn't elaborate as as much as uh reporters would like to see but um it's a tough job i don't i don't know um how I would do it. Uh, yeah. Uh,
1: I know that's what I say yeah, to people. It's it's much good. harder than you think to stand there mm-hmm. and repre- and represent the president and answer all of these questions so many out of left field that I I cut her a lot of slack. I know she gets a lot of criticism, but it's she's got her marching orders too.
6: Yeah, and I would say this. I think that um you know, Saki was very willing to mix it up with reporters. So mm. if she did not like the premise of one of your questions, um, you know, she was ready to go round for round. Corrine seems to have um, a mandate to lower the temperature in that room. And so if she doesn't have a answer, um, she's not going to go toe-to-toe with you so much as she's going to say, um, you know, I, I don't have anything for you on that or sort of dismiss the, the topic um, altogether. But to their credit, I think that both Jen Saki and Kareem Jean-Pierre they hustle and they work their way around that room and they call on reporters mm. knowing um, more often than not that they're probably going to disagree with a question but they're they're still willing to take it and um i think they, they deserve credit for
3: that you weren't around during the times when these weren't carried live uh, i'm assuming that you know you're younger <laughs> than that but i wonder if a lot of this has changed because they're carried live on TV. Everything is a performance. The reporters are performing. Mm-hmm. You know, there I think mm-hmm. there was a time when these were meant to be real information delivery mechanisms yeah. uh Absolutely. because you didn't have instant access on email. I mean, there was a time when email didn't exist, right? I mean, you did this you came to these events as a reporter to get information and now it's more I don't know. I feel like sort of it's turned performative. Into something else. it's performative yeah. almost. And
1: I would imagine you don't go out for a drink with the sources and hang out with them like you used to because everybody has to be so guarded in this age of Twitter and and t- cell phones.
6: So when I, when I started this job in 2019, one of the first things that I did is I called as many former press secretaries as I could to get a sense of how that room operated. And this was when uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was just not doing a daily briefing trump had uh dismissed them and i think that you know for um five or six months there wasn't any daily briefing in that room there was even dust on the podium and their excuse was that reporters were misbehaving but you're you're absolutely right i mean when the cameras are off it is much more of a factual exchange you know i need this information you know when is the president going Uh, where is he going what is he doing that sort of thing but Um, I was talking to Mike McCurry, who was President Clinton's press secretary Mm -hmm. uh, in the lead up to the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And he told me that he knew the moment when things changed uh, completely was when his mother called him and told him that he was sweating uh, on air during the briefing. He didn't know that she was watching live um, because he didn't know that the cameras were, were, were live. Um, but but in that moment, you know, he he draws that as sort of a delineation of of when things change. And I think the other thing is that there are cameras in that room and they're not pointed at the press secretary. They're pointed at the reporter. Yeah, Yes, weird. And so when you go into that room with your question, you know, yes, you want the answer. But every reporter in that room knows that not only is their editor watching, but also their family and friends might you know catch a clip um, that their sources are paying attention that, um, you know, bookers and producers are also tuning in. And so it, it becomes less of a, all right, I need this information to file my story on deadline. And instead it becomes, look, I, I have to be performative. I have to show that I'm, you know, speaking truth to power.
1: Real clear politics White House correspondent Phil Wegman. I want to thank you so much for joining me and Michelle on Cut to the Chase. Thank you so much. All right. And after the break, we're going to zoom in a little bit and talk about New York. What's going on in Albany with the budget with Zach Williams of the New York Post. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Observers say her future is bright. Here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Cut to the Chase, Cut to the chase with Laura Curran. Cut to, the chase. Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC.
1: Hello? Everyone, welcome to cut to the chase. I'm Laura Curran. I'm in the studio with CNBC's Michelle Caruso Cabrera, and on the line we've got Zach Williams, New York Post Albany reporter. Zach, what's what's it been like this past week? I understand a lot of the uh, lawmakers were away. I mean, what what are things getting done up there?
4: Hey, thanks for having me, Laura. You got it. Yeah, it's hard to say. We are now two weeks past the April 1st budget deadline, and it's a little bit anticlimactic. You know, the last couple days of the week, um, you know, the governor was more busy uh, having press conferences with Pete Buttigieg and uh, <laughs> about the impending um you know, abortion restrictions than seemingly having press conferences with the legislative leaders announcing the deal. So,
1: yeah, and she threw so, her well, shirt, her team, the governor's team threw a little shade to the legislator saying, Well, we're here and we're ready to work. We're ready to negotiate. We're all here. No one's gone anywhere.
4: Well, that's just the thing. Yeah, the governor says she is there ready to make a deal, but at the same time, she's not saying, Where are the legislators? You know? and it's one of the sub-narratives of this whole year has been, you know, where is the governor compared to the legislature? Is she, you know, a uh, in control, so to speak, of the Capitol, or is the legislature becoming more and more assertive? You know, we saw what happened with her judicial nomination getting voted down just weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Now we got a budget that's two weeks, and whenever that whenever something goes on and on like this, you know, it, immediately you got to look at the governor. The governor is the one that drives the budget process. She's the one with an enormous amount of leverage. And thus far, she, you know, you could say patiently is waiting on a deal with the legislature. But at the same time, it's really hard to know because there just doesn't seem to be a lot of action at all in recent days.
1: So speaking of assertive legislators, there was something on your Twitter feed that I don't know. Maybe I'm just old fashioned. I don't know why this didn't get more attention. Uh, it was Jabari Brisport and a bunch of other legislators banging on a box and s- chanting, along with protesters, tax the rich, tax the M- M- mother effing rich over and over. Like, it, I don't know. It just didn't seem very statesmanlike to me. Is this a normal occurrence or did that seem odd to you?
4: Well, I think what we're seeing from, like, the Democratic Socialists is a lot of kind of the, you know, tactics, if you will, that we've seen outside of the Capitol in recent years, you know, street protests, occupation, sitting down, you know, profane chants even, you know, are more and more coming into the Capitol itself. You know, we've seen that in past budget years. You know, last year they hung out in the war room, which is just outside of the governor's office, and year before they did something similar and, you know, we've seen that, you know, I think we're seeing we, we haven't seen as much from the political right. But then again, it's Albany, you know, where they're just kind of a little bit more off to the sides. But I, I think you rightly are seeing that, you know, a lot of these activists that become legislators bring what, le- you know, activist type approaches to uh, issues like this. Right. It's, I know, guess it's a
3: natural evolution. Th- they're more into government than they are into governing. Hmm.
4: Well, everybody's got Our a role to play, and yeah. you got the three leaders, and you got, you know, inside especially the the Democratic legislature, you know, the Assembly and the State Senate supermajorities, you have a leftist faction that wants things to go their way. Now, are they in leadership? Eh, not so much. So, what do they do? They, uh, you know, hold occupations and chant this and that uh, in order to get attention, and that's kind of their leverage in this process.
1: So, Zach, your sources—I read in on in Friday's paper—are telling you that housing, the housing compact, is eclipsing bail as the hottest issue being negotiated right now. Is there any movement on any of those issues?
4: Well, it's hard to say. It's like you know a conclave, like level of you know security in terms of what we you know actually know of what's being said. But from what we can tell, you know, for the past week or two, there's been lots of chit chat that really they're not so. Far apart on bail, you know, changing this least restrictive standard that judges have said kind of keeps them from jailing people ahead of their trials, you might threaten public safety, et cetera. And you know, there has there was murmurs of discovery this past week, yeah, and kind a, of loosening you know, mm-hmm. restrictions on you know when uh, prosecutors need to give you know an enormous amount of evidence that was expanded under discovery reform. But yes. Yeah, Housing, that's a big one. And seemingly, you know, it's not just the housing compact. You know, there's a lot of other things that, you know, uh, Carl Hastie said at the beginning of the week that legislators want to, you know, rental assistance for NYCHA housing. That's a big one for New York City legislators in particular. So
1: and good cause eviction. Is that is that on the table as a negotiation pawn?
4: Well, that's going to be a really good question to ask on Monday. Mm -hmm. because You know, we haven't seen, um, you know, I I believe it was last Monday or, yes, last Monday, uh, one of the legislative leaders, I think it was Andrew Stewart-Cousins, at a press conference next day, Carl Hasey, or maybe it was the other way around. And, you know, since then, we haven't really heard much from them, haven't heard much from the governor except a few quick questions at press conferences. So it's just like, you know, I see said earlier, a bit anticlimactic. It's kind of hard to believe that hmm. the budget is two weeks late and there's just not really a sense of urgency, yeah. at least from where i am sitting in the Capitol.
1: Yeah, that's odd. So uh, something that your paper had on the front page today was Judge Rowan Wilson is set for a vote tomorrow, Monday, uh, to be approved for the top judge position, the one that they dinged Judge Hector LaSalle for. Um, however, there is something in your paper on the front page about him tossing a rape conviction because of a delay in getting DNA evidence. Now, I don't know if this this could have been completely legit and he had to do it and he had no choice. But it makes me wonder if because of the increased politicization of the judicial system in general, I mean, all judges are going to have to make some difficult call that's going to annoy someone, a politician, at some point. Is this, is this ever going to end? I mean, it seems to be really hard to pick people to run the courts.
4: Well, you know, there, there are some um, important differences, certainly with the reception that Hector LaSalle got. Um, yeah. Well, you know, from we the were,
1: legislature, that's
3: for sure.
4: From the legislature, especially from organized labor, um, you know, from the get go, you know, the and it kind of went on for weeks and weeks, whereas this process, you know, the governor announced her pick like last week or something. And now we're already getting to a confirmation hearing. Some of that had to do with just kind of the legislative schedule. You know, Hochul announced it in December. Legislature wasn't in Albany, although that didn't stop them from coming back up here to give themselves a pay raise. But, um, you know, there were several, what, four, four or five weeks before there was uh, confirmation. This In this case, it's going to go quick. You know, a lot of the key leaders have already said they like this guy. Some might say that the whole point of this is to overthrow the congressional lines and oh. you know, tip the balance of power in Congress once that redistricting case makes its way through the courts. So, wow. you know, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of chess pieces on the board here. But, you know, if if you need one more sign that the budget isn't being gonna get passed when that extender expires on uh Tuesday, it's the fact that they're having confirmation hearings. <laughs>
3: yeah.
4: Right. Yeah, so what, there you go.
3: The, um key to all this uh, is the role of Senator Gennaris, right?
4: Well, Senator Gianaris's, uh press release right after the Rowan Wilson pick being announced, you know, indicating, uh, you know, his support basically for this nomination, you know, really showed that there wasn't going to be a big fight on Rowan Wilson and why should there be? You know, he has what some would say is a uh, liberal jurisprudence. Um, You know, and and what's interesting, Laura, what you brought up earlier. Yeah, make it quick
1: because we got to run
4: back up is simply that, you know, in Hector LaSalle's case, you know, he got criticized a lot for a very strict reading on the law. If it wasn't literally that word, you know, that kind of, you know, affected his decisions. And Rowan Wilson's is kind of like affected, you know, by. Kind of lofty ideals. Mm. And, you know, just look at the elephant case, the one that was suing for habeas corpus. You know, he said it wasn't so much that the elephant, you know, deserves to, like, file, you know, lawsuits trying to be a person or something. Of course (laughs) it's not a person. But what does it show about us that this intelligent creature can't petition a court or somebody on its behalf, obviously, you know, Um, So, Zach,
1: we're going to be watching all of this. I would love for you to come back when the sausage is made, uh, and we'll keep following you on Twitter and reading you in the post. Thanks a lot, Zach. All right. After the break, give us a call, 800-848-9222. We want to talk to you.
2: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Cut to the Chase. Cut to the Chase.
3: Laura Curran joining us live.
2: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC.
1: Hello, everyone. So that was a great conversation with Zach Williams. Um, you know, there's such a soap opera quality to so much of the news these days, isn't there?
3: Uh, yes. Too much. I much. It gets exhausting. It doesn't does it? get exhausting, but you do a great job. It's so fun <laughs> covering it all here. Well, thank you.
1: I'm, in, in case you don't recognize that voice, you may know it from CNBC. It's Michelle Caruso Cabrera, who's joining me in the office in the studio today. All right, we got time for your calls. We're going to get right to it. Uh, Jimmy, Nassau County. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Good, good. I'm actually a Mineola resident, so
5: oh, you used to represent me. Yes. Uh, Yeah, but I got to tell you, I, and I don't mean to come off in the wrong way. You know, I'm listening to the show, and I hear about Eric Adams and moderate Democrats. I mean, I just think that you know anybody could have run, could win New York City mayor as a Democrat, and I just wanted your opinion because I know you're a moderate. Yeah. Um, of the commonality of, of pretty much every major city—New York, Detroit, Chicago, Philly—what do they all have in common?
1: Yeah. So one thing I'll say: so he did have a big primary that he had to win, and there were some super progressive candidates he had to beat, which he did, and I think. Big by, yeah, by quite a bit. Uh, So there's that. But you know what, Jimmy? You do have a point. Uh, We do see places like Chicago, New York, uh, other big cities. People are leaving. They're voting with their feet. The businesses are leaving. And I have to say, this really concerns me because these businesses and these people are taking their tax dollars with them. Uh and who's going to be left to, to run the stuff here. So, Jimmy, I really appreciate your call, and I have to tell you it was an honor to, uh, to work for you back when I was county exec. All right, Mario, Manhattan.
5: Hey, Lori, keep up the great work. I'm going to hit you with some quick rapid fire, then you respond. First of all, as for confidentiality, classified papers in the military, the VA,
4: any, any idiot at the federal VA with an employee badge can look in any American veteran's record. They've left the medical records of American veterans out on the sidewalk and open boxes. And let me tell you, your first two guests, uh, I thought it was a comedy routine. Eric Adams is the worst. He's worse than the Bumio, and his real name was Warren Wilhelm. He didn't deserve an Italian name. What happened to the $1,250,000,000 that he gave his wife, Shirlane McCrane, for their tribe program?
1: Okay, thank you so much. I'm going to go to Phil because we don't have a lot of time. Phil, Suffolk County, what do you got? Yes,
5: very
2: quickly, Laura, how are you? Please tell me how uh, the Governor Hokel has the uh, the mandate, uh, allowed to have a mandate where low-income housing is being built up in from Concuba. Can she just do
5: that and override the legislature?
1: That hasn't been approved yet. She does have a plan to override local zoning around train stations. So the LIRR, Metro North. She has a plan. Uh, it's actually a big point of contention between her and the legislature. And I've been speaking to a ton of mayors in Nassau County and in Suffolk who don't like this. Uh, and I've learned I'm a big fan of transit oriented development. Michelle Caruso Cabrera and I were just talking about how much we need more housing, we need more affordable housing. But you have to work with the local officials. You can't say, oh, we in Albany know better than you. We're going to take away your power, and uh, you don't know what's good for you. So so anyway, but this is something that we're watching because it's being debated right now up in Albany. It hasn't happened yet, though, Phil. Thank you, Laura. You got it. Uh, let's talk to Bob from Freehold.
5: Yeah, Hey, uh, good afternoon. Uh, just good a afternoon. quick uh, comment on the uh, uh, ca- candidate from South Carolina. Uh, I, she kind of was uh, a, a person without principles and really... Who is, who is this, uh, I, Nikki I Haley? Think, yeah, Nikki Haley. She the to strike one as uh, a person who's uh, going to have the stamina to, uh, to stand up to uh, the issue on reparations, which is going to be pushed by the Democrats, and... Um, Uh, She she did poorly uh, during the riots, uh, the BLM and the Antifa riots.
1: All right. Well, we're going to keep our eye on that, Bob. Thank you so much for calling. Thanks for listening to Cut to the Chase, everyone. Please stay tuned for Positively Ernie and Patricia with Ernie Anastas and Patricia Stark. And thank you, Michelle.
3: A pleasure to be here with you, Laura. Great job.
0: Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.